Welcome to the Gospel of Grace radio broadcast, a primitive Baptist ministry declaring the good news of the finished work of salvation by grace alone. This weekly radio program is brought to you by Elder Joe Nettles, pastor of Sulphur Springs Primitive Baptist Church in Caledonia, Mississippi, and Elder David Wise, pastor of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We now invite you to stay tuned for our message this morning. Welcome, dear listeners, to the Gospel of Grace radio broadcast. Welcome. I am Joe Nettles, and I'm pastor of Sulphur Springs Primitive Baptist Church, and we are located at 40283 Wolf Road in Caledonia, Mississippi. We meet 1030 a.m. every Sunday morning. We'd love to have you. And we also want to cordially invite you to our sister church, Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, located at 11 Staten Road near Ackerman, Mississippi, on Highway 15. Very easy to find. And they also meet at 10.30 a.m. every Sunday morning. And their dear pastor, my dear friend, Elder David Wise, is their servant. And uh, you would just be blessed to come to either one of our congregations and worship the Lord with us. If you can't make it to either one of the respective church houses, we also hold a meeting together every Wednesday evening at the La Quinta Inn Conference Room in Starkville, Mississippi. That meeting starts at 6 p.m. It's every Wednesday evening, and we would love to have you. You can go to the website that services this broadcast, gospel-of-grace.com. Multiple resources there, archived messages, and a Primitive Baptist Church locator for your convenience. We encourage you to download as an internet radio station, uh, Grace Alone Radio. It is free. You can download it for an Apple or an Android device. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is uh, radio broadcasting over the internet of Primitive Baptist messages, of a cappella hymns, of scriptural readings, of devotions. It's a wonderful resource, and I strongly encourage you to uh, avail yourself of that. But we would love to hear from you. Go to our website, gospel-of-grace.com, and please send us an email. Let us know that you're listening, and we'll welcome questions or comments, whether they be positive or negative. We would love to hear from you. Today, we are beginning a message, a series of messages, actually, from Genesis chapter 22 on the Mount Moriah mountaintop experience. And to better understand that, we must first consider the sovereignty of God. So right after this hymn, Lord willing, we'll be right back with today's message.
Thank you, my friends, for staying tuned with us here at the Gospel of Grace Radio Broadcast. Again, I'm Joe Nettles, and I'm here with you in Genesis chapter 22. And in my King James translation, I've turned to Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. And this is uh, an account that is very familiar uh, to people who read the Bible, and even to many who have just maybe a cursory knowledge of biblical things. This is a very commonly known uh, Bible account, and so uh, we want to try to deal with that today. And one of the most conspicuous questions that always arises when we deal with this passage of Scripture. So we begin in Genesis chapter 22, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. First and foremost out the gate, we're told that God tempted Abraham. Now, you have to rightly divide the concept of tempting. Sometimes we see in the Word of God, tempting means to induce to do evil, induce to do sin. Well, we know according to the book of James in the New Testament that God cannot do that. He can neither be tempted with sin, uh, nor could he tempt men with sin. And that when we are tempted and we're drawn away of our lusts, it's our own lust, and we're not to blame that and God. So what does this mean? This tempting also can be used in the sense of trying or a trial or a test. God is perfectly within his realm of rights because he is God to try our faith. And here Abraham, our father and representative of faith from the Old Testament, is receiving a trial or a test. And God is certainly within his rights to do so. And uh, we must always keep the distinctions clear between being tempted with evil, as you and I are tempted to click on the wrong websites or go to the wrong movies. That's completely different than this temptation. This tempting of the Lord is a trying. It's a test. And Abraham is about to face the greatest test that he's ever had to face up to this point. So he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. First thing, another small point we'd like to address is it says here, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Well, that might be confusing because we know that at this point, Abraham also had a son by Hagar, the Egyptian handmaid, uh, his name was Ishmael. But when he said, thine only son, Isaac, he's referring to Isaac as a son of promise or the son through which the covenants that God made regarding Abraham would descend and would carry on. So he was a covenant son. But this message today is going to deal solely with the elephant in the room. Whenever you read this passage of scripture, whenever you deal with this account, there's always the great elephant in the room. And that is, why would God command Abraham to commit a human sacrifice on Mount Moriah? Why would God do that? And how could a just and right God do that? Well, you know, in our natures, we are prone to ask those questions and we're prone to wonder about those things. But friends, we must have a firm concept of the sovereignty of God. What does sovereignty mean? It means one who needs nothing, who has all power and answers to no one, who owns everything under his authority and is unfailing in his purpose. 
Somebody may say that a king is the sovereign, but when it all comes down to it, he's really not sovereign because you get enough of his uh, citizens together and they get riled up and angry, they can overthrow him. He is not sovereign. You know, none of us can truly be sovereign on this earth because even if we have been able to overcome every human obstacle in the way, we still cannot overcome the laws of nature. We cannot overcome the laws of entropy. We cannot overcome the law of gravity. Uh, these things we cannot overcome. We cannot overcome the law of the sin curse unto death. We're all aging. We're all getting sick and we're all going to die. So no one in this world, no man in this world is sovereign, but God is sovereign. And so we must look at this account and we must look truly at all of the word of God through the rubric, the interpretational framework that God is sovereign and what he commands is right and just, and he will not command anything that is not right and just. Let's start first with the first concept of what it means to be sovereign, and what would give God the right and what would make God right in commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son? Well, first and foremost, by the time we get to the end of this account, if you haven't read it already, Isaac is not going to be sacrificed as a human sacrifice, okay? Uh, God, uh, in his law, made it plain that people were not to be human sacrifices. That's the law he gave unto Moses, okay? According to that Levitical law or that law that he gave to Moses, th that was not a way in which to honor and to please God. So then someone may inevitably ask, well, then what would make God right in commanding it this time? Well, we look at the first concept of the sovereignty of God and understand that he has all power and he answers to no one. You know, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, the question is asked, is there anything too hard for the Lord? It's a very pertinent question in this day and age when people put limits upon God's ability all the time. Now, God has self-limited himself as the Yahweh. He is the eternal self-existent one and his nature and his essence is right and holy and just and full of truth and verity. So therefore, he is bound by some things that he cannot do. But we're not here to preach what he cannot do today. And if he cannot do something, it's because uh, he is precluded from doing it in himself because it is contrary to who God is. Not that there's any anemia about him or impotence. No, he is all-powerful. But yet, he is perfectly going to operate within the truths and the bounds of his own essence and nature. So in Genesis 18, 14, there's a very good question, and it's a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer is there's nothing too hard for the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, we read, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. So see, therefore, I mean, if you don't want to take Genesis 18, 14 as a rhetorical question, well, there's your answer in Jeremiah 32, 17. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. He has all power. Well, you should be able to see that in the very uh, nature of creation, that God has the creative power that we do not have. We cannot produce something from nothing. That's against everything we've ever observed, anything we've ever been able to accomplish. It is totally contrary to the abilities and the concepts of men, but yet it is not foreign unto God. In Psalms 8 verse 3, David was made to cry, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, 
the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. You see, God is all powerful because he was able to create everything that we know in time, space, and matter from a place outside or above, superseding time, space, and matter. And notice here, David said, this is just your finger work, God. If you think that it really, uh, he labored very hard for six days and then rested on the seventh, you'd be wrong because this creation is just the finger work of God something that does not take a lot of a labor and effort, not something that is not arduous. Also, to be sovereign means he answers to none. To look at this point, we go to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to see a transaction, a conversation that took place in Nazareth. Now, that is Jesus's home country. That's where he was reared. That's where he was raised. And here Jesus is visiting with them in the synagogue, reading for them. And we'll pick up in verse 23. And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Here Jesus is anticipating. He knows exactly what's going on in their minds. They're saying that this is a man of Nazareth. Here we are in Nazareth. So therefore, all the wonderful miracles that he's done in Capernaum, Obviously, he's obligated to repeat them here in Nazareth and to show these things before our eyes today, obviously. And that's what here the Lord is telling them. He has already anticipated. He knows for a fact what they're, what they're expecting. And he said, in answer to that, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, or we know him better as Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. So here he's saying there were many, 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 many Jewish widows. Now remember, he's addressing Jews here in the synagogue. He said there were many, many, many Jewish widows in need in that time when Elijah lived. He said, but unto none of them was Elias sent save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, that's a heathen city, unto a woman that was a widow. Here, God directed Elijah to go into the house of one who was not an Israelite. Uh, Why did God do that? Because God decided to do that. That's what God does. He's sovereign. He doesn't have to do what we expect him to do or what we demand him to do. Verse 27, he said, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, or Elisha, And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. Why would God choose to save from leprosy Naaman the Syrian, who was not an Israelite, who was not a part of the commonwealth of Israel, who was not one of his covenant people regarding the national covenant of Israel? I'll tell you, though, I believe he was one of his elect covenant children. Why did he choose to heal Naaman the Syrian and not one of the thousands uh, at least thousands, multiple thousands of Jews that had leprosy in that day. Some of them will say, well, it seems to me he would heal his own. Physician, heal thyself and whatnot. Well, you see, when we come to conclusions about what we expect God to do, we need to be very careful. Again, we need to go through what the word of God tells us and understand that Jesus was teaching the sovereignty of God and that he is under no obligation to any of man's needs, any of man's demands, man's purposes, or any of man's illusions of entitlement. You see, they all mean nothing unto God. God is only obligated to do that which God has promised in himself to do, which he has obligated in himself 
to do and to perform for mankind. We see this spoken of in Romans chapter 9. And we'll begin reading with verse 14, Romans 9, 14. Now, verse 13 says, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That is a very noxious passage of scripture and concept to most of Christendom today because they've been sold this idea that God loves every human creature and he is obligated to love the people that go to hell as much as he loves the people that he will save to heaven. I'll tell you what, that would be a dreadful claim to make against God. He said, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, I can't get into all that. There is a whole sermon in that itself, at least one. But we're going to carry on with verse 14. After saying this, he anticipates the reply of men. And would this be your reply today? Would this be your reply? He said, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Somebody would say God would be unrighteous, unfair if he didn't love everyone. See here, the apostle Paul 2,000 years ago inspired the spirit to answer your challenges today and the challenges of our original fallen nature that we see ourselves better than we actually are. We don't comprehend how depraved we are and we think somehow that God is beholden to us. No, friends, God is not beholden unto you. God is beholden to honor himself, his own righteousness, his own truth. You see, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He said, you can find a man that says, I've made up my mind that I, I need to be part uh, of heaven one day. Now, this person may have no love for fellow man in their heart, but if they were sold on the idea of heaven after a while or Valhalla or the great hunting ground or whatever the case may be and says, you know what, if anybody deserves that, I deserve that. You know what? It's not of him that willeth because that's not a holy will that's been given of God. You see, it's not of him that willeth nor of him that runneth. Someone would say, oh, I can run. I can work. I mean, I can do holy, righteous things and I can work my way into heaven. God says, nay, nay, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. See, if I was to go out and tell people, all you need to do is drum up a will within yourself to be saved. Well, according to that passage of scripture, that would not be so. And according to the word of God, you can't just produce a will, a holy, righteous will within a depraved nature. It can't happen. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Here God is saying, you know what, I'm so sovereign that I can raise up rulers just simply for the fact to throw them down to my own name's honor and glory. Verse 18, therefore he hath hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and to whom he will he hardeneth. Friends, you'd have to have help to misunderstand the clear statement of the sovereignty of God, how he answers to no one. He has all power. You'd have to have help to misunderstand the clarity of Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. Well, some of us said, well, you know, I know it says not of him that willeth or runneth, but, uh, you know, even if his purposes run contrary to our sense of right and wrong, 
you know, obviously God isn't, you know, that far removed from what we have figured out is right and wrong. Well, let's continue reading in Romans chapter nine. Pick up with the, the next verse, verse 19. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? See, the apostle Paul, again, is anticipating the challenges of men. And I'm telling you, it's the challenge of natural men, but it's also the challenge of many people whose hearts have been tendered by the Spirit of God. But the problem is they're in ignorance regarding what the Bible states about the nature and the sovereignty of God. I want to try to show these things to you, my friends, from the Word of God, that we have no right to point a finger at God, and we have no right to say, well, God would certainly do it this way. Well, God's only going to do it in the way in which God has described for us in His Word that He's going to do it. Okay, someone would naturally say, well, if God has power to save whom he will, uh, if he, uh, you know, has mercy on whom he will have mercy, well, obviously, why doesn't he just have mercy on everybody? Why doesn't he just save everybody? Well, that's a valid question, but the problem is it's answered in the word of God in more than one place. And it's certainly answered here in Romans chapter nine. Thou, again, he anticipates the question. Verse 19, thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? I mean, if God wills people into heaven as according to his will, why didn't he just will everybody into heaven? Well, the reply of the apostle Paul is this, nay, but O oh man, who art thou that repliest against God? Who are you? to challenge what God has clearly conveyed about himself in his word. Who are you to say, no, it can't mean that because that's not the God that I worship. Well, maybe the God that you worship, even in part, may be extra scriptural. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we all have the obligation to examine ourselves to see that we be in the faith. And sometimes the suppositions that we make regarding God are contrary to what God has revealed of himself in his holy word. In Psalms 33, he said, it's the thoughts of his heart to every generation. So I want to know about God in truth, right? I know you do too. He said, nay, but O man, who art thou that repliest against God? <clears throat> shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? You see, friends, even though there are some things about God we can't understand, there are certainly some things that are inappropriate to do. And that is to challenge God. Even if there's something about God's nature that's spelled out in his word that we can't firmly grasp hold of, my friends, we need to pray for light and we need to pray for faith to believe in the God that is, not the God that we wish him to be. God forbid, okay? And friends, I want, to, I want you to think about that question. Why wouldn't God just save everyone? Well, you know, according to our uh, compassions, you know, we... we seems to make sense to us, but I want you to stop and think about the nature and the essence of God. He's saving a people to heaven. Why? So that there will be an eternal testimony to the aspects of God's mercy, his love, his redemption, and grace, and his giving. Throughout eternity, saved people will be singing these praises unto God and rejoicing in these wonderful concepts of the Lord. But friends, that's not all there is to God. God is also a God of justice. He's a God of wrath. 
He's a God who hates sin. And he's a God of requirement. What he has required must be satisfied. So are those aspects of God, the justice, wrath, hatred, and the requirements of God, are those aspects of God any less glorious and worthy of eternal attestation? Are they more holy, more right than his mercy, his love, his redemption, his grace, and his giving? Friends, I can't perfectly explain it, but I know if there's an eternal woe and misery for the wicked, that will be an eternal testimony to the justice of God, to the wrath of God, to his hatred of sin and the requirements that he requires. But friends, all of us would have wound up in that place of woe and misery, hath not the love and the mercy, the will and the sovereignty of God saved a people out of every kindred, nation, people, and tongue. Now, these things are hard sayings to a lot of people. You may be listening to this message today and say, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? Friends, they said the same thing over in John chapter six, when the Lord Jesus Christ preached his own sovereignty, his own power to save. And I would implore you, Jesus loving person, to just accept God for who he is, because your preconceived notions, your prejudices, the things you were taught by maybe mama or daddy or grandma or grandpa, those are not scripture. They are not inspired. And my friends, that will lead you unto an idol and not the true God of glory. We want to know more about God, more about Jesus. Would I know more of his grace to others show? So, as you read Genesis chapter 22, and as we study this account on the top of Mount Moriah, I want you to try to understand this opening passages, these opening passages through the understanding of the sovereignty of God. And that if Isaac had been smitten by that knife, by his own father that day, then you realize the death of Isaac here would have meant his immediate awaking in felicity and in glory and in fullness, never to suffer a sin, never to commit a sin, never to have another ailment, never to see corporeal death. I can tell you what, friends, we need to look at things from a different perspective and we'll see God in a purer light. So until we're able to carry on with this subject again, May the grace of the Lord reveal these things unto you in a special way. If you enjoy the messages you hear on the Gospel of Grace radio broadcast, we invite you to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. To find a Primitive Baptist Church near you, to listen to past messages online, and to find further contact information, you can visit our website at gospel-of-grace.com. You can also find our program on iTunes under podcast entitled The Gospel of Grace, a Primitive Radio Broadcast. 
If you listen and enjoy our program, we would love to hear from you. You may contact us by email at gospelofgracepb at gmail.com. This program is produced by Sulphur Springs Primitive Baptist Church, 40283 Wolf Road, Caledonia, Mississippi, and Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, 11 Staten Road, on Highway 15, just north of Ackerman, Mississippi. We would love for you to come and worship with us each Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. We invite you to tune in again next week for another message from the Gospel of Grace. Until next time, we pray God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus our Lord. Wonderful the matchless grace of Jesus.